Gorbachev teared down this. Yeah, that'll do. Welcome back to uh, the Cold War uh, episode something. Uh, 118. Good for us. How are you, Papa Bear? Uh, I am like you. I am doing the best I can with what I got. And in regards that that's for my uh, internet, I'm just barely getting by, just like you. Now, <clears throat> I need to ask you a favor today. Oh, sure. Don't don't say anything that makes me want to be mean to you because right. I've been told yet again, I get told this <laughs> weekly, but this this time by our guitar playing virtuoso mate Scotty Scotty Burbick <laughs> just to be a little bit nicer to you. Right. I think he said something like you never know Ray might might snap and come after you with an AK-47. And I was like, I'd like to see him. I said, listen, if he can get that into this country, then fucking he deserves to take his shot, quite frankly, because it's not easy. But I like the fact that he he wasn't concerned about you, though. He was concerned about what you might do to me if I keep being mean to you. And I said, look, I've tried to be nice to Ray, but it's so hard. He just... Brings it on himself, like you know. I'm sorry, officer. I didn't mean to beat my wife, but she, quite frankly, <laughs> she, she was asking. She was asking for it. <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean there. I see what you mean there, sir. Oh God, she said something to me. I wanted to hit her as well. Go on, nothing to see here. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's a uh, little. It, it's funny mm. you should say that because mm. I actually I've snapped. Seven, I think it's seven times, and, and on the seventh uh-huh. one, I actually bought a plane ticket. I'm like, no, I can't. I, I'm too. I can't. I can't fit that into my schedule. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I canceled <laughs> it. But so he's right. He's he's on the money. I'll do what yeah. I can. I'll yeah. do what I can. Right. Yeah. Um, show note: uh, just for the Aussies listening, we're recording this the seventeenth uh, of May, two thousand and nineteen. Bob Hawke died yesterday, age eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, longest serving Labor Prime Minister in Australian history. Mm. Um, you ever heard of Bob Hawke, Ray? No, I don't believe I have. He was a Cold War warrior. Yeah. Uh, Prime Minister of Australia from 1983 into sort of, uh, I don't know, 90, I think. Right. Um, he... Um, uh, was an interesting guy, yeah. Really he, did a lot of things. Was he a decent human being? Yeah, he okay. was generally considered to be a very decent human being, a major alcoholic in the well, early part of his life, um, union leader, right. major union leader in Australia, who then gave up the booze. He actually still, I think, has the world record for drinking a yard-long stick of beer um, for the quickest amount of time. <laughs> Basically, holds a record for sculling beer. And oh. even la- and so he gave up drinking to become prime minister. Didn't touch a drop for thirteen years. Finished his stint as prime minister. Then started took up drinking again. Good for him. And even in, into his eighties, would go to cricket matches in Australia and uh, scull a beer in front of uh, the crowd, <laughs> and everyone would be like, "Yeah, Bob, fuck <laughs> 
Uh, big big cigar smoker all his life. Um, often often photographed even late in life uh, smoking a stogie. Nice. Um, he's the guy that when Australia won the America's Cup in 1983, uh, took it off the Americans. The Americans lost the America's Cup for the first time. Right. So uh, he said uh, he, he was live on television wearing a jacket with, uh, I don't know, some garish Australian jacket with Australian logos on it or something, said um, any uh, – because <laughs> it happened at like 4 o'clock in the morning our time. Right. Everyone was up watching the America's Cup. He said uh, any boss who uh, fires somebody for not turning up to work today <laughs> is, a, is, is a complete bum. <laughs> Complete bum if you fire people for not turning up today. Good for him. Basically declared sure. it a declared it a public holiday <laughs> for a sporting victory for the country. Um, Class, uh, I like that. I like 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 the blue joke. Like the ladies uh, left his left his wife uh, after he became prime minister to marry his biographer, wow. um, who was twenty years his junior or something. Spent a lot of time together. Um, yeah, but is it a larrikin? What we call a larrikin prime minister? This guy, mm-hmm. um, very, very, uh, very much loved. Not by everybody, of course, but he very much loved during his uh, tenure. I think as prime minister, and and uh, certainly afterwards, a living legend in Australia. Cool. He was considered so the last of a generation of sort of blue collar. Uh, well, I mean, he had he had a law degree, but you're sort of a working class man right. um, that was just very, very Australian. Like yeah. these days, they fake that. These days, the politicians will, you know, have a photo opportunity at a bar. <laughs> right. uh, look at me drinking I'm, of the beer. I'm Australian. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Rolling up their blue sleeves and uh, oh, you know. They're, 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 they fake it yeah. to try and appeal to the you know certain demographic, Bastards. but Bob Bob was the last of the real deal. Like right. he was uh, he was rough. He was rough. Um, but as all of the obits have been saying about him, he could he could sit down with billionaires. He could sit down with factory workers. He could meet foreign uh, you know monarchs and 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 foreign political leaders and. He could he could mix with everyone. He was comfortable with everyone. Um, he uh, 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 pushed through Medicare uh, in wow. this country. He's the he's the guy that brought in um, our single payer uh, healthcare system. It had been introduced by Prime Minister previous to him. Then another government got rid of it, and then he brought it back for good. Good. Um, floated the dollar um, and uh, and also drove the stake through apartheid. He he Ooh. as ran a Commonwealth heads of government meeting, Chogham as it's known, with all the com- the Commonwealth uh, leaders used to get together. Right, and uh, he pushed through. He pushed through um, a uh, financial sanctions against the South African government as part of Chogham, mm-hmm. which uh, was one of the final sort of nails in the coffin of uh, apartheid. Um, fought against racism, introduced uh, um, uh, equal opportunity laws in Australia for women, right. um, introduced the Discrimination Act uh, to prevent discrimination against women in the workplace, did a lot of stuff. It was yeah. a... He was one of these guys that uh, drove through a lot of Sounds lasting practical. changes in yeah. the country and um, yeah. had a good innings, 89. 
So nice. there you go. Bob well, Hawke. Look him up. Look up. If Even if you're a foreigner, get up on YouTube today. Um, just look up a video or two of Bob Hawke. Look up mm-hmm. some of the obits and uh, just educate yourself a little bit. Or if you're a younger generation yeah. uh, who wasn't around during Bob's day in Australia, go and, go and check him out. He is... Uh, Somebody to somebody to know a little bit about. He was a he was a interesting politician. Yeah. Well, not that it's a competition, but I just want you to know that our current president could sit down with billionaires, millionaires, factory owners, dock workers, and he could talk to them too. Now, don't get me wrong; it'd be a little awkward. It'd be like, "Hey, you got a daughter? What's her age? Is she legal?" I mean, it would be it would be weird, but he, he could talk to practically anybody as well. So, thank you very much. That's true. That's true. No, so, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Him and Clinton. There you go. But, but I'm just saying. Donald Trump is is the American Bob Hawke. Um, <laughs> that might be taken One's up. a fake billionaire. <laughs> the, other was a, the other was a union leader. But sure. <laughs> Speaking of union leaders, Aussie yeah. union leaders, we'll get into Harry Bridges. So yeah. last time. We uh, were talking about red scares in the US and and how the red scare phenomenon really grew over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it really had nothing to do, well, very little, I think, to do with what was happening in Russia. Right. It was the red scares in the United States were driven by domestic issues. Mm -hmm. Um, All politics is local, as we've said many times before. And uh, I, I finished last time talking about how FDR's New Deal was seen as a threat by the industrialists, by the capitalists in the United States. Yeah. And uh, I think that is probably the main driver. They started to see threats to their laissez-faire control of the economy mm-hmm. and they they wanted to associate any attempt to regulate, further regulate their their industry um, to be associated with socialism and communism and then to demonise right. socialism and communism just as, as, as ideas, not, nece- not even necessarily the, the implementation of it in places like the Soviet Union, but just, just the very idea of it full stop is how yeah. it became a, uh, a, 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 a dirty word, right. a four-letter word in the United States. Yeah. Up until very recently, it has been that way for better part of a century. Now, uh, we mentioned last time journalist John Franklin Carter, and um, he wrote about how before the 1930s there had been what he called, quote, an intimate relationship between the Treasury and the private bankers mm. in which the treasury was run primarily for their convenience and in which its subordination to the monetary policies of Wall Street was taken for granted. Yeah. So that's that's how Carter saw it. Now, I want to play a clip from FDR's inaugural speech. Yes, the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truth. The measure of that restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values, more noble 
than mere monetary profit. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort, the joy, the moral stimulation of work, no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent profit. Could you make out what he was even saying there? Uh, most of it, yes. I'll read it to you. The money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truths. The measure of that restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values more noble than mere monetary profit. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort. The joy, the moral stimulation of work, no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent profits. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I mean, easy for a uh, rich guy who inherited his wealth to say happiness lies not in the mere possession of money, but I guess he probably knows better than most. That's true. That's true. Um, But you can imagine how bankers and leaders of industry felt about him. But can you, can you imagine uh, Donald Trump, your, your current president, standing up and saying uh, happiness lies not in the mere possession of money? Yeah. Uh, and it's about social values more noble than mere monetary profit. <laughs> it's well, quite, it's, yeah. I don't know about you, but it's kind of shocking to me to even read an American president saying stuff like that. Because to me, my idea of the, the, the American values is it's, it's all about monetary profit over everything. That is the core of, of how I think of. Like the, I mean, I'm not trying to paint the brush of everybody in America, but generally, I think uh, American culture values profit uh, above everything else. Right. Well, you were. You Is that were, unfair? No, that that's totally fair, and I'll take it one step further because you were talking in the last episode, and you might have been um, quoting John Franklin Carter. I can't remember exactly, but I think most Americans probably forget how much of a revolution. Uh, a bloodless revolution, the uh, the New Deal was. And don't get me wrong, FDR had plenty of defeats to go along with his victories because not only was it the greed of these people that helped cause it by their, um, by their dealings that were less than ethical and also dangerous and risky, and it brought down the economy, which obviously affected the world. But so not only is the money and their greed the center of what happens when when the Great Depression comes along, but it's also the individualism that we cherish above everything else. So FDR is going to come along and go, okay, this is no longer about the individual. This is about helping everybody. This is about coming together as a society, a community. Community. You can call it religion. You can call it a state. You can call it a government or a country, whatever you want. But we need to be looking out for each other, and we need to curb the excesses of the wealthy and the greedy, because they're the ones who brought us to the state. And so it was an economic and social revolution. Now, there weren't there wasn't blood in the streets. There weren't bankers being, you know, taken out to the street and having their heads cut off, maybe like in revolutionary France. But it was nonetheless a revolution. And I think that that's gotten lost over the decades. Yeah, I think we did talk about that last time. And it's, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think it was seen as a major revolution. And we, we don't really remember that, remember it that way right. anymore. Yeah. Um, I, certainly, I, I, I didn't have that perspective 
on it until I was prepping for these shows. Well, well, not only that, but I think the average, and I can't, again, I have to speak for Americans, but I think the average American reads history like this. The Great Depression comes along. I'm not really sure. I don't understand all the details, but it comes along. There's people's savings are wiped out. There's a lot of people unemployed. Things were really, really bad. And so FDR comes along and he does all these measures that are by the standards extreme, but it was needed. So everybody went, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And it worked out and everything was fine. I think we had that kind of practical linear attitude towards it, but no, it was truly a revolution. And and I think like you said last time, I mean, Congress fought against him. The Supreme Court fought against him. The bankers fought against him. His own family members fought against him. The rich class fought. I mean, this and the the church fought against him. So, like I said, FDR had as many failures as he had political victories. But this was a revolution nonetheless. Here's a quote from Carter, uh, the journalist. The bankers are the old order, which is being displaced by the New Deal. If Roosevelt can establish social control over the whole credit system, the victory of the New Deal is half won. If he fails to do that, if he leaves to the private bankers of the Federal Reserve System their former ownership of the credit of the nation, his whole program will fail. He's obviously writing this like 1933, 1934, uh, you know, very early on. Instinctively, largely by their own olfactory nerves, the big bankers realise this. In a nation which measures everything by money, the money lender is the king. Our money lenders, for every banker is nothing more than that, have been our masters. And as they have seen the New Deal muscle into their domain, they have naturally opposed it bitterly. Mm. So here's a journalist from the early 30s saying that uh, in a nation which measures everything by money, the money lender is king. So I, I guess that's kind of what we were saying before. Nothing has changed, really. That is kind of how America has defined itself for a very long time, measures everything by money. And here's a guy saying that, you know, in the 20s and then into the 30s, the bankers really controlled the country. Right. Um, and I, I would argue that it's not much is different today. Look at <laughs> Goldman Sachs and their uh, yeah. relationship with the revolving door of Goldman Sachs execs going in and out of the U.S. Treasury. Yeah. Um, bankers pretty much run everything. And uh, so this is what FDR was trying to do in part was displace the bankers from the control of the country. And so they were going to fight him with everything they had. Carter started this chapter of his book, Public Enemies, uh, with this quote, sort of what you were hinting at before, I think. Mm-hmm. The revolution in American political and economic life, and through them, American society, which goes by the name of the New Deal, is distinguished from all contemporary revolutions in that it is being conducted without victims. Soviet Russia exiled and executed and liquidated its capitalists, bourgeois, and kulaks. Fascist Italy used the cudgel and the castor oil berry to coerce critics and has maintained its terror squad and its isles of exile. Mm -hmm. Hitler's Germany has singled out the communists and the Jews, and Japan has suffered from wave after wave of patriotic assassinations. Under Roosevelt, the only victims have been ideas rather than the men who entertain those ideas. No defaulting banker has been lynched, 
No hard-boiled mine operator has been jailed. No profiteer has been mobbed. And I have to ask, maybe that was a mistake. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe he should have gone all the way. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, do you know what a castor oil berry was? Is that something to make you pucker? I have no idea. What? No, me either. I thought uh, you might know, being the World War II expert. No. Castor oil, castor oil berry. Um, I, I think it might have been like uh, something to do with poison because I know that I know this from Breaking Bad that ricin is made from raw castor beans. Wow. Or can be made from raw, raw castor beans. Um, four to eight seeds right. um, is enough to be a lethal dose. Good God. Um, so maybe maybe the, the, the fascists under Mussolini were poisoning people with castor oil. I don't know, man. Yeah. Uh, castor oil berry. That's what it sounds like. They were ricin poisoning them. Yeah. Well, but you made a good point earlier. I mean, all these other leaders of country have taken rather extreme means to um, to either keep the people in line so there would be no big changes, or they got rid of people that would, you know, could be an, uh, an economic or political challenge to them. But Mr. Carter, he 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 doesn't waste any time. He he says he he gives that quote that you just said, and then he gets down to the brass tacks. He says, "Look, we have plenty in this country," and and in a ways that's kind of the problem because it. The plenty that we have doesn't get shared by the masses. It gets it gets hoarded by the one or two percent or whatever. And he goes, anybody, any force or any person which can postpone or hinder the distribution of that plenty to the American people has to be regarded as public enemies deserving the guillotine. So he's so he's writing years later. And he's like he's acknowledging that no one went to jail, no one was executed or whatever. And uh, and I think in some ways he's marveling at that at that but at the same way i think it's almost like you because you know i'm kind of surprised that these people obviously broke laws they brought our country down to economic ruin and no one's paying for it um do you remember in the in the 2008 uh, global financial meltdown one person in the united states was charged and found guilty of some kind of uh malfeasance economic malfeasance so it was one person that we know obviously there were thousands of people involved in, in bringing down the in bringing down the economy but he's but again like you were saying he's like look there's no secret police running around stifling people's criticisms if you ignore for a second hoover and his fbi there's no public ex- executions and so there's there doesn't seem to be a revolution taking place but this but um the people who are supporting the new deal are trying to do something new and they do have enemies and he lists some of the, the several enemies. And I was surprised by the way he talked about Germany and Japan, because I think you've hinted at this before. He said, basically, look, Germany and Japan are being humiliated year after year after year after World War One, and it's only a matter of time before they strike back. They're a proud, strong people, and it's only a matter of time before they build up their resources and come out. And they've got the discombobulated China right next to them. So it kind of makes sense that they're going to go out and, and grab land and grab territory and grab resources. Not unlike the Americans a couple of hundred years ago when we took from the Mexican empire, the uh, the country of Mexico, and we might've taken more if we hadn't stopped. So they're not doing anything that we haven't done. But like you were saying earlier, once we do it, we close door and no one else is allowed to go around and just take, uh, 
territory willy nilly. So he had a lot of criticism um, for the for the old order, and he and he called them out by name and saying we have to watch these people and we have to be ever vigilant, taking power from them, holding it for ourselves, and always be ready to uh, to either punish or to go after those who would keep America from prospering and from from the people sharing in that prosperity. Um, I uh, did find some stuff on castor oil. Um, okay. says, uh, the most famous use as punishment came in fascist Italy under Benito Mussolini. It was a favorite tool used by the black shirts to intimidate and humiliate their opponents. Political dissidents were force-fed Ooh. large quantities of castor oil by fascist squads. Uh, Victims of this treatment did sometimes die as the dehydrating effects of the oil-induced diarrhea often complicated the recovery from the nightstick beating they also received along with the castor oil. Mm. Even those victims who survived had to bear the humiliation of the laxative effects resulting from excessive consumption of the oil. Uh, Inspired by the Italian fascists, the Nazi SA used the torture method against German Jews shortly after the appointment of Adolf Hitler as Chancellor of Germany in 1933. It is said that Mussolini's power was backed by the bludgeon and castor oil in lesser quantities. Mm -hmm. Castor oil was also used as an instrument of intimidation, for example, to discourage civilians or soldiers who would call in sick either in the factory or in the military. Right. It took decades after Mussolini's death before the myth of castor oil as a panacea for a wide range of diseases and medical conditions was totally demystified, as it was also widely administered to pregnant women and elderly or mentally ill patients in hospitals in the false belief it had no negative side effects. Oh, my God. So I remember castor oil when I was a kid. Yeah. It was a thing that they would uh, make you drink, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of associated with punishment. Here, you have to have a spoonful right. of castor oil as punishment. They're like a little rascals. Somebody wasn't feeling good or they said a bad word or they were misbehaving. Spoon or two yeah. full of uh, castor oil. That shut you right up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and apparently it wasn't just the fascists. Uh, the British in India and the British Raj oh. used it to... Used it as a punishment to deal with recalcitrant servants. Come on. I say, Johnson, <laughs> you brought me my tea and scones 27 seconds later. It is now cool. Castor oil for you, yeah. my good man. A double dose, I say. Yeah. God. Did, I, I just have to ask, did you read uh, where Carter compared, well, kind of compared professional politicians to Al Capone in Machine Gun Kelly? Uh, no, read that to me. <laughs> he, he just said, now he talks about all these various enemies of the New Deal. And he says, all of these, as well as the professional politicians who just want to stay in office, are far greater enemies of the American people than a thousand Al Capones and Machine Gun Kellys. The conservative wings of both political parties and the press through which they speak are endangering the welfare of the people. And, and and he goes on from there, and he's like, you know, the the conservatives, the the old power will tell you, no, 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 these are the old time tested American ways of how to deal with problems, whether it's a social problem, whether it's an economic problem, you know, you just turn to us because we have the answer to all of these kinds of things, and and he just and he breaks it down to the to the to the 
brass tacks. Let me see if I can find it here. He ends with this. He says, Ideas and ideals can die, can even be brutally murdered, with less suffering than the old order casually inflicted on a million undernourished children. So he's like, yeah, you, you starve these kids to death. You make them work incredible hours. They're in factories. You don't care. We have to be just as tough and vigilant against you as you are against taking care of them. Yeah, I, I, look, I think that's one, one thing that people don't uh, tend to appreciate these days is mm-hmm. how brutal the industrialists were in the oh, yeah. late 19th and early 20th century around the Western world. They, yeah. you know, we, they really didn't give a shit about their employees and quite often mm-hmm. used uh, violence against their employees when their employees tried to strike for better conditions. Um, we, we are so far removed from that today that we don't remember how bad it was. Uh, yeah. Unless you go read books like The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn or some of you know Michael Parenti's work, people like that who uh, remind us of how brutal it was. Or you go back and read guys like Carter, American journalists mm-hmm. from the 30s that was actually talking about how brutal the industrialists were and uh, how, how much they fought back against FDR's New Deal and any attempts to try and regulate their behaviour. And then, yeah. as I said earlier, tried to associate any attempts at regulation with uh, socialism and communism and then had to demonise those things uh, and, and, as we'll see, also associate them with uh, the end of religion. Right. Which we'll Look, get into because religion, religion was a big factor in the, the Red Scares. Oh, absolutely. And the way that comes about is, and I don't mean this as light as it sounds, it's, it's kind of funny how they're able to incorporate religion. Let me ask you this. Before we step off of Carter, not that I don't know that we are, let me, before we finish with FDR giving it to the moneylenders, like Jesus in his speech, I've, I've come across a couple of things where it says that Roosevelt, through the New Deal, saved capitalism from itself. He made it, for lack of a better word, he made it work. He made it understandable. Yes, one of the one of the major things he did was he curbed the excesses of, of the uh, greedy and the wealthy, which is always a good thing, obviously. But some people are saying that we might be living in a different country right now if he had not been able to work and the country stayed in dark financial times and there might have been a true revolution with blood in the streets. Did you did you run across anything like that? I just I just found it interesting that I I hear this I hear this um, accusation that he saved capitalism from itself. But I think that whoever thinks the, along those lines truly doesn't appreciate how radical he was for the time, and that he was doing the best he could, just enough to save the American workforce, but at the same time, he couldn't change things too much because he was already being challenged on every side as it was. Well, I think that was a concern in the US at the time. Like Mm -hmm. if you, if you look at the socioeconomic conditions of the working classes uh, after the crash Mm -hmm. into the great depression, people were really struggling. They were starving. They were unemployed. They were living in squalor. A lot of them, Right. And, uh, yeah, those are usually the conditions under which revolutions occur. Revolutionary leaders rise up mm-hmm. and they they can push through uh, a violent, often, revolution. And uh, these sorts of things, 
were happening around the world uh, at the yeah. time. I mean, the Russian Revolution uh, had happened. You and I, in, in this series, have covered the, the Indo-Chinese Revolution, mm-hmm. Vietnam, which uh, took place a little bit after this. Uh, and of course, then uh, after World War Two, you know, we saw the the Cubans and a number of other countries around the world have their own revolutions. Uh, it, it, there's no reason to think that America couldn't have had its own revolution against the industrialists, uh, against the uh, control of right. big capital on the economy. Um, if things had if if the industrialists had continued to be allowed just to run roughshod over the general population, that may have eventually happened. But I think combination of FDR and the New Deal uh, reined in those excesses a little bit for a little while, and then of course World War Two came along, mm-hmm. and uh, everyone was distracted by that for a while. And then, of course, yeah. as we've talked about in the show, as a result of the Keynesian economics that were in place, the military Keynesianism during World War Two. America and, and the fact that all the other major economies of the world were destroyed uh, during the war. America came out of it in the late 40s, into the 50s with this boom economy, mm-hmm. which which probably uh, you know rescued it for a while from the threat of revolution. Um, so there was a number of things, I think, that prevented that from happening. Yes, but sure, I mean, there's no, there's no real reason it there couldn't have been a revolution in the United States and uh, right. no reason why you couldn't have one now. Just hint, hint, by yeah. the way, if you <laughs> want to overthrow the capitalists, uh, it has been done. There is a yeah. blueprint for it. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was trying to find a quote from Carter, one more quote, I can't find it right now, but he was basically saying that um, anybody who tries to measure a president's success by the stock market is missing the point. It's not about the stock market. It's not about making sure that the one or two percent are okay, thinking that their profits are there. They're going to spend money and it's going to trickle down. And it's going to take care of everybody. If you if you think that you are part of the problem and you keep the idea of a revolution alive, I, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he was again. It goes right back to the stock market. That's not how you measure success. Those people are generally going to be okay. It's the people that are you know on a, in a bread line for three hours or, or whatever who are now unemployed and living on the streets. And again, that's that he was just really pushing that. And I love the idea that you. you I think you said this last time. He was writing this anonymously. He used the fake name. He was talking about himself. And he was going at these people pretty hard. But I think he had to be anonymous in order to be as honest and as blunt as he was. Yeah, he was He was on friendly terms with a lot of yeah. these guys. <laughs> but was so being critical of them um, anonymously. Yeah. So in 1939, anyway, uh, dies, we mentioned before, Martin, I think it's Martin, Martin Dyes Jr., mm-hmm. who was running the, the Dyes Committee, sort of the predecessor to the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, he claimed that the Justice Department was investigating 2,850 known communists in government. They were working for the federal government. Oh, my God. And that FDR had ordered a purge of all of those known communists. Mm-hmm. 
According to a Chicago Tribune story, apparently based on a leak, this list had been prepared by the FBI. Mm. However, um, the president had ordered no such purge, (laughs) but he had secretly ordered J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, to make a list. And the Chicago Tribune later reported that the list was suppressed and Hoover had been given a slap around the back of the head for leaking it to the Tribune. So you remember from last time, the uh, new attorney general had, uh, you know, this is in the going back to the early 20s when Mm -hmm. Hoover was made the head of the Bureau before it was the FBI. He had said, you know, you you were not to make lists of people based on their political views. (laughs) Right. Uh, This is America. You can have whatever political (laughs) view you like. Damn right. You're... The Bureau's job is to go after people who commit crimes that are actually crimes, and having a political view is not a crime, so don't do it. <coughs> but, Damn right. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. But FDR had secretly ordered Hoover <laughs> to make a list of communists. Yeah. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, in one of her books, recalled, quote, one occasion where my husband and I were given a confidential list of organizations which were communist or subversive or un-American, mm-hmm. a list compiled by the FBI for the use of the Dyes Committee. Mm. Now, uh, some names on that list that surprised them when they saw it included... <laughs> FDR's mother, Mrs. James Roosevelt. Right. Uh, Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox. Mm. Secretary of War, Henry L. Stimson. Come on. And the Roosevelts themselves. <laughs> so, uh, is that is that me? That looks like me. Yeah. That's me. Hey, that's me. Hey, 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 <laughs> J. Edgar, make a list of, of subversives. And un-Americans, will you? Oh, my yep. God. <laughs> hey, what, what am I doing on this list? Well, sorry. Uh, this whole yep. New Deal thing, pretty subversive, as pretty far as I'm concerned. You're on pinko. the list. No, yeah. they, the, the other characters I mentioned, Stimson, Knox, FDR's mother, mm-hmm. they were listed as financial contributors to two or more of the subversive or suspect group. So if you contributed money right. um, to the uh, Make America Great Again <laughs> Foundation and right. Hoover decided that that actually had some communist ties, you ended up on the list. But now this is, yeah. I'm just going to say real quick, but, but considering the conversations we've had so far about Hoover, I mean, it didn't take much for an, a committee or an organization to get on this list. So I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure a lot of those committee uh, excuse me i'm sure a lot of those organizations uh their ties to communism or socialism was tenuous but again it doesn't matter it's there on the piece of paper he's in charge of the fbi that makes it official and which is going to go a long way to explaining why in the future so many lives are going to be ruined just because his opinion is what matters and it goes on the list yeah but the point here is that fdr ordered him to make a list so we had uh, the the Attorney General a decade earlier say uh, no lists. Right. You know, no, it's not a crime 
to be a communist yeah. or to support a communist party. Uh, still not a crime. Huh. But, FDR, but FDR is telling Hoover to make a list. So this is something as a, as a, you know, we were sort of talking about FDR as the good guy fighting to establish the new deal against the money lenders and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, at some juncture, he yeah. goes, yeah, okay, we need to start making secret lists of un-Americans. Even though he, in the last episode we were talking about, was railing against the Dice Committee. Right. So the only thing that's un-American is calling somebody un-American. <laughs> Uh, now, but he is secretly behind the scenes going, yeah, yeah make a list of my enemies, an enemies list, yeah. American enemies list of our own people. Now, there's a great story I wanted to tell about this, about the Dyes Committee and the Roosevelts. In okay. 1939, Dyes called in a guy called Joseph Lash okay. as a hostile witness. He's like, give it, we're going to give him the Lash. <laughs> Joseph Lash. Now, until recently, Lash had been the National Secretary of the American Student Union, basically okay. a socialist slash communist group. The story mm-hmm. is that on his way to the hearing, Lash met Eleanor Roosevelt on a train. Hmm. Um, I, I think th- this may be a slightly mythologized version yes. of the story, but this is the story that I heard. Um, When the committee heard his testimony, Eleanor Roosevelt attended the hearings (laughs) to provide moral support for a guy they were accusing of being a communist. Right. Now, yeah, when she turned up, they were like, oh, uh, First Lady's here. Would you like to sit over here with the the Inquisition (laughs) side of it? She said, no, thanks, and she sat with Lash right. and the other student union people who were being questioned by the committee. Jesus. Now, during a break in the hearing, she then took Lash and the other student union folks back to the White House for lunch. <laughs> sure. Sure. Happens yeah, all I'm going to invite all my commie friends over to the White House for lunch. And that night they had dinner with the Roosevelt's. And that night she got put on um, Hoover's list. No, sorry, go ahead. Now, a few years later, the FBI burglarized the American mm. Youth Congress's New York offices. That was enough, sure. another lefty, another lefty organization that Eleanor supported. Oh God! And they photographed her correspondence with Joseph Lash. There was Damn. letters in right. the offices. And she would start her letters to him with Joe Dearest Mm-mm. and would f- conclude them with All My Love, E.R. Sex machine. <laughs> and Hoover came to the conclusion that she was having an affair with Lash because of that. Yeah. He's not very good at this, is he? Now, well, the funny thing is, like, there have always been these rumours that Eleanor Roosevelt was a lesbian. And there have always been rumours that J. Edgar Hoover was a closeted homosexual. Right. So for a closeted... Now, I'm going to say right now, I know of no real evidence to support either of those. I've looked into them in the past to some degree. 
um, you know, Rose, uh, not Roosevelt, Hoover used to, um, he basically, his best friend was a guy, used to live mm. with him, used to go on vacations with him. They spent all of their time together. Oh. Um, but Hoover used to say, well, you know, he's just, just my mate, just my buddy. Um, yeah. my, I don't have time for relationships. I, I live for my work. Saving the country. And, uh, yeah, saving the country from the commies, man. <laughs> from the president. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even if that's the president, and don't don't have time for it, so just got a just yeah, got a yeah. mate, got a buddy. We go out, we do stuff together, have dinner, yeah. nice little romantic candlelit dinners. Why not? Nothing gay about that. Um, it's not gay if you're not looking him in the eyes. That's um, true. That's what you told me. And Eleanor Roosevelt also had uh, at least one very, very close female friend that she spent a lot of time with. But again, mm-hmm. I know of no evidence that's come to light. Right. According to according to the people that have done major biographies on them. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Listen, this was just rumors, maybe. But if it was, they kept it very well hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, but just interesting that a guy who's for decades has been suggested he was a closeted homosexual was uh, possibly the guy that um, th- thought that this closeted lesbian was having an affair <laughs> with a young communist. Takes one to oh, know fuck. one. fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> he's not accusing her of being a closet lesbian. No, he's accusing her of having an affair right. with a commie. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. Uh, but apparently, okay. again, no, no evidence of, the, of that being true either. Um, right. She, she, was just, she was just, you know, lovey-dovey she, in her letters. All my love. And she, she was wrote. Just, she, one yeah. of those people, you know. I'm a, I'm a big hugger, as you know. I love giving <laughs> hugs. I see you. We, I'm, a, I'm a big hugger. Um, that doesn't make me gay. No. I don't think. Maybe it no. does. I don't know. I, I mean, you told just me that was a I like pocket knife in your... Anyway, um, she she wrote massive amounts of letters. Uh, and that was what you did at the eight, uh, at that time. But, but Eleanor wrote tons of letters to so many different people. Um, so I'm not surprised that there was a lot of letters. The affection, who knows? I mean, maybe they were, uh, you know, um, um, uh, kindred spirits as far as the left leaning or as far as taking care of the common man. There, there's so many different reasons why the word love could have been on there besides sex. Yeah. yeah. Now, Lash, by the way, later won both the Pulitzer Prize for Biography and the National Book Award for Biography for wow. his biography on the Roosevelts, Eleanor and Franklin, 1971, the first of two volumes he wrote about mm. Eleanor Roosevelt. So they were definitely close. Yeah. Um, now, the FBI ended up with a 3,000-page file on Eleanor Roosevelt, <laughs> which basically accused her of being a communist. Um, it also contained threats... Uh, on her life for grounds of her disloyalty to yeah. her country. They closely monitored her activities and her writings over decades and had a record of insurrectionist groups that she thought that they thought she might have influenced or had a relationship with. One member of the Dyes Committee actually accused her of being part of the Communist Fifth Column. Mm. And they think that uh, Melania Trump gets a rough time. Um, <laughs> Eleanor was actually accused of being a communist oh my by God. the FBI. 
now, yeah. yeah. Now, sorry. So, you know, we, we have to think about that in conjunction with today's red scares mm-hmm. about Trump and Putin and the Russians and mm. this and that and the other. That's why this is not new. Back in the 30s, right. FDR and his wife were both accused of being communists as well. And what was driving that? Uh, probably just the big capitalists trying to uh, make it difficult for the Roosevelts to introduce regulations uh, that would curb the industrialist ability to run the economy. Now, let me ask you, in in your readings, because I came across this, but um, no time for a detailed analysis, but I get the sense that she was more politically to the left by how much I don't know than he was. I think he was very pragmatic. I think he was very practical. Um, and so I'm not surprised that she gets these accusations. I'm not surprised that anybody on the right would try to, to use that against her. But but now you and I can look back. We can look over this for decades after she's gone. Do we know of anything that she did that harmed the country, that threatened the security of our nation, that affected in a negative way our economy. As far as I'm aware of, she hasn't done or hasn't been tied to or proven to have done anything illegal, immoral, dangerous for the country in any way. So if there's if there's a list, if there's accusations or whatever, as far as I know, they never, ever, ever panned out. And I know that's part of your point, that this is nothing more than a, a tactic to try to get FDR to back down on the New Deal. But as far as any kind of legitimate threat that she might have been, that has never, as far as I know, manifested itself. Yeah, I don't think so. Nothing that I know of so, either. And again, the point that I want to make here is that even Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt were happy to be associated with people that were socialists or communists. They had yeah. them to dinner at the White House. Yeah. It, was, it, it wasn't un-American to support Don't. a socialist or a communist yeah. organization or to, or to be friends with socialists or communists because it was, a, it was a political point of view. And in America, you're allowed to have political point of views. Are you? Uh, it's kind of one of the points of America, I thought, <laughs> was freedom of thought, freedom of speech. That's yeah. one of the things freedom that America of yeah. is and, and should be proud of, as should every country that has that. Um, reading communist material, being involved in communist groups and meetings and associations or giving them some of your money um, wasn't illegal, (laughs) but it it came to be something that could ruin your life over time. Right. And as we're going to see later, when we deal with another person, there's a, um, a Supreme Court ruling that goes against this person. I don't want to jump too far ahead. But yeah, the, one of the dissenting judges says, look, people, when they're not at work, they have every right to associate with anybody they want, do anything they want when it comes to politics, religion, whatever, their hobbies, as long as they're not hurting anybody or threatening this nation go for it. You can do whatever you want, but but you're making the the point that that's not, even though that's the law of the land, in some ways, that's not the law of the land. It gets changed. At the very least, you can be accused. And these people do try to go after people. They do try to change the laws. They do have some success. And I don't know if it's just that overall fear of change that stems from the New Deal that helped bring all of this insanity or paranoia, whatever, about. Mm. 
Well, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of explore that yeah. as we go on. I want to read, just to wrap up this episode, uh, this is the uh, um, news report that mm-hmm. was where, where Eleanor was accused of being oh, part of a communist fifth column. Right. This is time stamped Friday, May 24th, 1940. Mm-hmm. We're recording this on May 17th, 2019, so almost... Some number of years ago. I can't be bothered doing the fucking maths. No, good for you. Mason charges First Lady AIDS fifth column. Also accuses Mike Miss Perkins in debate in-house by Willard Edwards. Willard. There's a good old-fashioned American name. You Mm -hmm. don't get many Willards these days. No, thank goodness. Secretary of Labor Frances Perkins and Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt yesterday were named by Representative Noah M. Mason, R. of Illinois, as having extended sympathy, encouragement, and protection to the so-called fifth column agents in the United States. Mm. Mason spoke in the House in opposition to the proposed transfer of the Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization from the Department of Labor, headed by Ms. Perkins, to the Justice Department. The move was designed to cover up Ms. Perkins's mismanagement of the Bureau, he oh, declared. Right. The results desired by the president can be much more quickly and effectively secured by demanding the resignation of Madam Perkins and appointing a competent, appointing a competent administrator in a place, he told members. The Illinois representative proceeded to relate concrete examples of protection, of sympathy and of encouragement lately given to fifth column agents that are at work in our midst. Oh Mason is a member of the Dyes Committee and some of the facts he gave the House had not previously been made public. Mm-hmm. I will call attention to the astonishing appointment two months ago of William Hinckley as administrative assistant to the Commissioner of Education, Mason said. It is my understanding that Hinckley obtained his position through the recommendation of Mrs. Roosevelt. Hinckley was, for a number of years, National Chairman of the American Youth Congress, a subservient follower of the Communist Party line. It is Stalin's fifth column among the youth of this country. Jeez. And it goes on. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah. So actually, this is a long, long report of uh, stuff from the FBI file on Roosevelt that yeah. I've got here on Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. I just wanted to add that um, Eleanor, because you mentioned this, you, you alluded to this earlier, but Eleanor also used the FBI for her own means, and I and I do, and I mean that in a patriotic way. I think she had them investigate. Was it the American Youth League? I'm trying to remember. There was this one organization that she supported. Uh, I'm not sure if she invited them to the White House, but she supported them financially. But then when the non-aggression pact comes between Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany, and then suddenly both sides start saying nice things about each other, and this particular American entity did the same thing because they were towing the line from the common turn uh, of Stalin. Um, she had them investigated and, and quit supporting them. So um, I, I think things like that were ignored and brushed aside when if somebody went too far or if somebody was connected to actions or words that was against the security of the nations, she she would back off. But that's not going to be enough to get her off 
of the hook with all these people because, again, she's just so far left compared to some of these conservatives that are bankers or whatever that, yeah, she's going to appear to them to be either a socialist or a communist. Mm. Sure, why not? Yeah. She wanted to make sure yeah. of what their Due connections diligence. were, particularly, particularly if she's being accused mm-hmm. of being associated with people that are deeply connected by the way, this guy Hinckley that they were talking about, I tried to figure out if he's at all related to John Hinckley Jr. Right. Uh, could not find anything about this William Hinckley guy, so I can't connect the lines there. But uh, right. I did. I twinked at the hink. I went, oh, a Hinckley. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me they're connected. Please tell me they're yeah. related. Yeah. I, I yeah. Just... <laughs> Go ahead. Well, you just think about it. So if if... This Hinckley that this article talked about was a communist working for Stalin, and then his great grandson John Hinckley Jr. tries to kill Reagan. Right. Oh, you could go. Oh, look at that! But you know, that's a conspiracy theory for another time. <laughs> right. And just I want to end as far as my participation. I want to end this with one of the very first things you started the show with, as far as FDR purging people, supposedly purging purging people from the federal government. Um, on in one way. He did when he came into office and he got comfortable. He started purging people that he had the right to purge, you know, because the president gets to make a lot of appointments. He did purge to a degree a lot of um, conservative Democrats or people that started fighting against him or that were against him when he started passing various parts of the New Deal. So was there some purging going on? Absolutely. But it was people who were too conservative. Um that were fighting him, not communists. So again, there's the reality, there's the stories that goes around. And then there's a list that supposedly someone made up that was leaked, but um, the truth always gets lost in all of the stories. Mm. Well, so that's where we'll leave it. I think it's just uh, interesting to see that in the thirties, yeah, even the president and the first lady, as well as the secretary of war, yeah. were being, and the secretary of the navy were being accused of connections to communists. I just have to ask real quick: if you're if you're um, Hoover and you're putting this list together, do you go the extra step of saying, "Okay, look, we all agree that FDR is on the list, but we're not going to write his name on the list." Because the old guy might actually want to see the list. Is everybody with me? I mean, I'm just surprised that somebody wasn't smart enough to take his name off the list before he got to see it. Mm. Or what? No, I think I think they wanted him to see it. Oh fuck! <laughs> to scare him. Well, no, look, I think that was part of Hoover's thing with presidents. Um, listen, I have dirt on Ooh. you, so. Mm-hmm. I've got, I've got. That's probably the the you know the least of the dirt that he had on FDR, as yeah. we know. Yeah. Because we've talked about this, FDR liked to, uh, you know, dro- get his pickle rubbed by uh, various ladies. He and he and Eleanor seem to have a fairly uh, open live marriage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm sure Hoover. Had a lot of dirt on FDR that he could have used. That's how he protected himself for for decades, Hoover, just with having dirt on presidents. Ballsy. He had had all of their affairs, photos, uh, you know, videos probably that he would jerk off with at night. He had everything. (laughs) 
Well, he had it all. Here's an idea. How about, and you don't have to be Christ-like, but how about you be president and be powerful and not use that to get laid with women you're not currently married to? Is that asking too much? What's the point of being powerful, <laughs> Ray, if you can't use it to get laid oh. by women half your age? Right. That's, uh, why bother? Why, <laughs> That's why, why we bother? podcast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You've answered my question. I thank, I thank you for your time, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week with more on the Red Scares.